Hi CFRC listeners, it's Thursday morning and you are listening to 101.9 FM. I'm Meg Herod, host of a new program called Everyday City, where we talk about decoding the city planning process and how we can take a collective role in shaping the city we want to live in. I'm really excited about our show today. We are talking about conservation authorities and the recent threat to their power to protect our wetlands, waterways, and natural habitat. To discuss, we will be joined by Katrina Ferlinetto, General Manager of Cataracty Conservation, and our local MPP, Ian Arthur. So let's wade on into Queen's Park circa a week ago, when a new bill was passed, Bill 229, a COVID-19 recovery bill that makes changes to the Conservation Authorities Act, an act that governs the 36 different conservation authorities across Ontario, including our very own Cataracty Conservation Authority. Now, this bill is not very COVID forward. I'm actually not sure what it has to do with COVID at all, but here's what it does do. It diminishes the power of conservation authorities. It changes the oversight that conservation authorities have over new development projects, allowing developers to fast track appeals and approvals. It gives the Minister of Natural Resources and Forestry the ability to bypass the oversight and the advice of conservation authorities. World Wildlife Fund CEO and President Megan Leslie says that this is a gutting of core environmental land use management. And former Mayor of Toronto David Comby calls this a high-level bombing that needs to be resisted. Let's hear from Katrina, General Manager at Cataraki Conservation, about what this really means. Welcome, Katrina. Thanks for speaking with me today. Let's get into it. So Katrina, exactly a week ago today, I guess, um, Bill 229 passed, so a COVID-19 recovery bill um, with pretty significant changes proposed to conservation authorities across Ontario. How will this bill change your work at Cataraki Conservation? Sure, good question. And it's a pleasure to be able to speak to you today about this. So. With the passing of the bill, uh, there were several amendments that were brought forward uh, that have a potential implication on the work we do, uh, but there also is a lot of unanswered questions that we're going to need to take some time and and talk with ministry staff and our partners and uh, review additional regulations that are anticipated to come out uh, early next year that will talk more about the specifics to our programs and services and the day-to-day work that we do. Uh, but really some of those amendments for now that, that impact our business have to do with the uh, planning and permitting aspect of our role. So for those of you who are familiar with, with the amendments, there is now the opportunity for uh, a ministry to provide a ministerial zoning order with approval from or um, acceptance from their municipal partners in which a development would take place, a ministry can put forward an order to make sure that that project goes forward. And for us, that's a change in practice because that particular order would put in place a mandatory permit that the conservation authority would have to put forth. There is an opportunity to put conditions on that particular permit and we would have to work with the proponent on that as well as the potential municipality 
but we will continue to be able to discuss the application as we normally would through the regular planning process with the municipality and then would hopefully be able to negotiate and, and discuss any concerns that we had up front. Um, but if that were to move forward, then really the ministry would come in and, and make a decision. And so that's a completely different change in, in practice for us um, that, again, we haven't had to deal with on a, on a regular basis. And, uh, and we like we continue to collaborate with our partners. And so that's something we'll do moving forward regardless. The other piece that came down had to do with governance. And so the one piece that we've been talking to our representative board members about includes uh, appointments to our board of directors. And so a municipality right now is able to pick either a municipal counselor or a citizen appointee to represent them at our table. With the original amendments that came out, they would only be allowed to provide an elected official at the table, not necessarily a citizen appointment. So the amendment that came out was a little bit of a compromise where the ministry had said, uh, we still would like that to be the case. However, uh, only up to 70% of your membership needs to be elected, an elected official. Uh, so that's challenging for some of our smaller municipalities because they may not have the capacity to send an elected official forward. They relied on citizen appointees who have the background, the expertise, the community knowledge, the local perspective to come to our table and represent them as best as they can. And we've been really lucky. We've had several really, really strong advocates at the table for municipalities and for the watershed-based approach that we use. So that'll just be a change moving forward. However, there is an exemption that uh, any municipality who feels that they do need a citizen appointee can write to the ministry directly, talk about their concerns, and they, they will consider exception. So with these changes, would that mean that uh, a development application could be on environmentally sensitive land where previously it was not able to? Potentially. As I mentioned earlier, when we receive applications, we work with our municipal partners to talk about those concerns, to talk about the sensitivity and to provide recommendations on how to um, sustainably move forward on different development that will come forward. Uh, if there is a file where the municipality and where other players feel that the development itself should move forward either way, then yes, there could be an opportunity where we could be ordered to allow that to happen. Okay. That's where the conditions become really important. I see. So it's an extra layer sort of of oversight that could be eliminated from the process. That's right. Okay. That makes sense to me. One of the things you mentioned when you were explaining about these changes what a, was a watershed-based approach to planning. Mm -hmm. and I'm wondering if you could expand on what that looks like and what that means. Sure. So our business is based on, or conservation authorities, I should say, are founded on a watershed. So basically, we don't we don't do our work based on municipal boundaries. We do them based on how the environment interacts. So different stream systems flow into other places, different lands connect. And so you have to be able to work that into your planning to ensure ecological protection and conservation moving forward. So with a lot of the decisions that we make and a lot of the work that we do, we look at that regional broad scale perspective. And so for planning, again, that's important because if you have uh, 
two municipalities that share the same watercourse or that share the same boundary, uh, you want to have a consistent approach across it ecologically. Um, but with some of the changes, that may not be the case. If moving forward, you're not able to con continue that consistency, then there could be choppiness and uh, conservation becomes very challenging after that. Your comments are really illustrating that your work is so much larger than the parks that we know and that we can go for a walk in. What is the scope of your geography? So we have about 3,800 square kilometers of land, um, 4,700 hectares of property, where we span from greater Napanee all the way to the city of Brockville and then north upwards to uh, just shy of Westport. And so we have a huge shoreline, um, over 700 kilometers of it that spans our jurisdiction. And so it's about an hour, an hour and a half to, to drive our entire watershed um, that then enters into Lake Ontario. So it's not small, but we have a very robust adapt adaptable team that does the best that they can to, to manage and protect and, and meet our mandate in that area. Okay. Yeah, thank you for explaining that. I think, I think it's an important point because often we think about sort of the, the public interface that is way broader. And I think too about, we have a wetland in the middle of Kingston. If you're driving west from downtown, you pass a huge wetland and you can kind of see development on the, on the edges of that, that wetland. And so I imagine some of the changes that you're saying, you know, maybe those have impacts that we will see. I'm wondering if this bill came as a bit of a, a surprise to the conservation authorities, or is this something you kind of knew was coming? So review of the Conservation Authorities Act is not a new concept. It's been happening for, for years, and we've been having this conversation recently, probably since 2017, I want to say. Uh, and earlier this year, in the beginning of last year, we did have consultations with the province on some of their original thoughts on what the programs and services conservation authorities should be doing. So the conversation itself is not new. The idea of the changes coming through an omnibus budget bill, like in addition to COVID and all these other pieces, was a shock. And some of the amendments that came out were a little different than some of the conversations and positive feedback we were receiving earlier this year. So I wouldn't say it was new concept. I wouldn't say that it came out of nowhere, but there were aspects of it that we were not anticipating. Right. And so this is the impact is for not just Cataraqui, of course, it's for conservation authorities across this province. Mm -hmm. So 36 in total. So thinking larger scale, what does this look like across our province potentially with these changes um, coming to a fore? Well, the big piece for us is that a lot of the work that we do is to protect people and property and is to really provide that professional expertise for um, ensuring that the ecology is, is protected and, and considered for you know, flooding and drought and all these other aspects. So with some of the amendments in place, that makes that job much more difficult. And our you know, role and our professional expertise can be overruled at times, potentially. And so that just becomes, again, challenging to, to provide that consistency and, and overall protection. Um, most of the changes like I mentioned, we'll see through regulations and what that actually means in more detail to our day-to-day -day business and how we, we interact with, with others on the landscape. Uh, but for now, I would say that's our, our biggest challenge. Okay. 
that makes sense. And I think with COVID, um, there's just been more time that everyone is spending in, in outdoor spaces out of necessity. And so this omnibus bill was a COVID-19 recovery bill, but in a lot of ways, it seems sort of at odds with COVID-19 recovery work going on. Um, would you say that that's a fair statement? Um, or how would you respond to that question, I suppose? Yeah, good question. We have seen a huge uptake of people at our conservation area specifically, and there was a lot of comment for mental health and for getting outside that the people really appreciate the residents in our watershed appreciate that space. The province has come out with funding opportunities to help with with COVID in terms of um, enhancing those spaces. Uh, the challenge is that we as conservation authorities have to work with our partners in order to prioritize those areas to, to address some of those needs. And we're working hard to collaborate and make that happen. Um, however, I'd probably say overall, it's challenging to address uh, the volumes with the tight budgets that we have and the changes put in place haven't necessarily made that process easier in terms of the maintenance and, and overall operating. Um, but more details, again, will come out with, with further regulations. And we've been told that there will be a consultation process for us and, and our colleagues and, and partners to help inform what those details look like. Katrina, what, what is next? Um, what's sort of the next step in the process from here? Sure. So. Again, these amendments came out, not all of them were proclaimed. So some of them are just written in legislation and haven't come into effect. Uh, some have. So those ministerial zoning orders that I spoke to earlier, for example, are now immediately in effect and that could happen. Um, so we're going to digest that process, work with Conservation Ontario and our other conservation authorities to ensure that we understand that new role and, and how to move forward. Uh, and then again, we're waiting for regulations to come out to speak to some of the, what the province terms, mandatory and non-mandatory programs that conservation authorities can do, and they'll get into more details on what their vision is for conservation authorities through those regulations. And so that'll come out probably in the early new year. And based on that, we'll be doing a lot of work to uh, talk to the province, receive feedback, talk to our partners, and reevaluate how that may change our overall business model, as well as how we work with our partners to be effective on the landscape. Thank you, Katrina. Really interesting to learn about the breadth of work that conservation authorities do. It's so much more than we see when we go for a walk at Lemoyne Point. Conservation authorities are the experts on watershed or systems level environmental planning, and they play a really important role for municipalities in the province and making sure development doesn't pave over important ecosystems. I'm going to bring in Ian now. Ian is our member of provincial parliament and he cares a lot about the environment. It was one of the issues he campaigned on. I want to start by thanking you for joining us today on CFRC to talk about Bill 229, a COVID-19 recovery bill that was passed on December 8th at Queen's Park. It has concerning impact for our environment um, by making changes to the Conservation Authorities Act. 
Ian, I want to start by asking how detrimental is the passing of this bill to our local cataracty conservation? Uh, honestly, it's unfortunately pretty bad. Uh, it frankly doesn't have a, a lot uh, to do with COVID recovery. This is uh, more, more of an ongoing agenda of this government to, to open up provincially significant wetlands and forested areas to development. Um, basically, uh, it removes the role of the conservation authorities in watershed planning. And they, you know, conservation authorities have this mandate that allows them to move beyond the boundaries of any given municipality and to plan for a watershed in its entirety to take into consideration uh, stuff that's happening at, at the riverhead, like at the, at the sources of, of the water that comes down through our communities and, and to be able to plan with that kind of comprehensive scope. Bill 229 gets that. They removes the, the role or changes how the boards are, are appointed for conservation authorities and, and basically it concentrates all the power in the ministry so the minister gets to do whatever he feels like instead of experts. It's really concerning. Um, <laughs> yeah and so sort of as a follow-up to that the Cataracty Conservation and Conservation Authorities in Ontario act as this sort of um, non-partisan um, advisory board that's sort of at an arm's length to government in a way. And how important is having that nonpartisan perspective on these types of decisions that impact our environment? It's, it's incredibly important. And one of the reasons conservation authorities were brought in in the first place was because of poor, poor planning decisions that had been made. There was homes uh, were being flooded in, in the fallout from Hurricane Hazel where unfortunately several people died. Uh, they created these entities to be nonpartisan and to, to be able to plan on a bigger scale than municipal councillors are, are able to and to not really be influenced by politics because they're, I mean, they're experts in the field. They're scientists. They, they understand watershed um, management and, and they advise based on that. And unfortunately, what that means is that sometimes they're the folks who tell a developer they can't go ahead with the development that they would like to do. And that makes them unpopular with some parts of the development community, not all of them by any means. And so very much, I mean, uh, Premier Ford has from the minute he's been elected, been very clear that he wants to make more lands available for development. Um, and he, he, has, he has politicized it, unfortunately. So he's taken what should be a nonpartisan uh, expert advisory panel and, and turned it into a partisan advisory panel. Great. Um, you're, you're getting at something that's really interesting around, um, well, environmental oversight in general, um, but also around the economy. And should we have to choose between economy and our environment when we're talking about our post-pandemic future? Uh, it depends on how you're looking at it. I mean, my, I would say no, that you don't, but it, it, it takes a rethink of how we approach growth and, and where we're putting the emphasis. Um, there, we have lots of room for gentle densification. You know, growth done well is a powerful tool for economic recovery. And conservation authorities are part of, of growth being done well. And that's what's unfortunate is I, I think what we're actually going to see is, is the, the cheapest and quickest growth being pursued by the government without a lot of uh, considerations for the long-term effects that's going to have on communities. Um, we already have entire swaths of houses that are basically uninsurable 
because they flood so often. No insurance company will provide coverage at all for the homes, which basically renders them, them worthless. And we'll see an increase in, in that again, where the insurance industry is unwilling to pick up the tab for, for poor development. Right, right. So, so development doesn't need to be against the environment. Absolutely. And there's some really fantastic developers out there who are working, who, who have mandates not to, you know, build on, on even in prime agricultural land or significant uh, wetlands or, or, you know, there, there's some really great developments that are going on where they don't cut down any trees. They design the development to work around existing structures. We're going to need more housing. We're, we're you know, we're welcoming um, hundreds of thousands of, of new Canadians and it will put a strain on our already strained housing system. We're going to have to come up with inventive ways of doing this better. And, you know, we, we have a homelessness crisis here in Kingston and frankly, housing should be a human right, but, but you're absolutely right. You don't have to give up the environment on one hand to be, to, to have that growth and, and support those communities on the other at all. It just takes some smarter planning. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And it's, and it's nice to hear that there are good examples in our community that we can look to for inspiration. Um, yeah, absolutely. Shifting back a little bit to this bill, Bill 229. Um, so I know that this is an omnibus bill. So understandably, there's a lot, there's a lot of pieces that are part of it. I am seeing a lot of assertions online that the conservation authority sort of schedule as part of this larger bill was slipped in or it was for a sneak attack. I want, I yeah. want to know, are these assertions true? Uh, I would say so because we, in Ontario, we have the, we have an environmental bill of rights and it, you know, mandates the government to do certain things uh, whenever they're passing legislation that has to do with the environment. The one exception to that is the budget bill. So if you are you know, in the budget bill, even if it touches on the environment, you don't need the amount of notice that you have to put out. You don't have to go through the same process of public consultation. And so we have seen in last year's budget and this year's budget, extensive changes to environmental uh, pieces of environmental legislation that, that were contentious, that are contentious. And, and they absolutely are put in the budget bill in order to avoid some of the public obligations that they would have otherwise. Uh, this government has not particularly respected the Environmental Bill of Rights. I mean, they've been sued a number of times for failing to post changes to uh, the Bill of Rights as, as they're mandated to do, as they're legally bound to do, and, and they lost those court cases. So it, it hasn't, you know, they're, um, they, they have an unfortunate approach to it. It's, governments in previously have been able to work with it, even the previous Conservative government uh, did not try to kind of flaunt the, the rules so, so blatantly as, as this government is trying to do. Right. To me, that indicates that they did not sneak it in, but certainly put it there with intent, knowing that it didn't have to do with COVID, because that limits the amount of time that folks who don't want these changes to go through, conservation authorities, municipalities, Ontario Federation of Agriculture, the, the opposition to that schedule was from across the board. And, but they didn't have time to organize. They don't have enough time to push back because from introduction to passing was two weeks, three weeks maybe. Okay, so the normal consultation process that would need to be adhered to for a different type of bill was yeah. 
wasn't needed, the steps weren't needed to go through for this particular yeah. bill. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So in a case like this, how is the public, can we be aware of these issues um, that are sort of hidden in the deep depths of a bill that, that we might not be in our consciousness? Well, definitely get, um, sign up for some email lists, I, I think would be a good place to start, certainly because there's some amazing groups out there who work really, really hard. Environmental Defense and Ontario Nature both raised red flags as soon as the schedule was released. They have fantastic people who um, go through this, this stuff with a fine tooth comb. Uh, certainly my, you know, we do it. We have a research team in the Ontario NDP as part of the opposition. And, and when we get a bill, we start going through it to look for what the, the implications of it are. And we get outside advice when we need it in terms of, of the sort of the legal side of things. Uh, so there's lots of ways people can find out about this stuff going on. I think you, uh, if you're interested in it and, and you look for it, it's going to be there. Um, certainly, uh, as the official opposition, we've been pushing back against this on day one. And folks are always welcome to get involved with, uh, from a party perspective if they want to, uh, but not nonpartisan works as well. Okay, that's great. And great to know the resources available as well. So I want to ask you about your tweet. Um, and that was from right after the bill passed on the 8th of December. And you said, we will continue to push back on this government's latest attack on Ontario's conservation authorities. Um, what are the ways that we can push back? What do you mean by this? Well, so unfortunately, they have a majority government. So it's very, very difficult. But there, I, I think it has to do with organizing the groups that are opposed to this. Uh, we can be a touch point for all the different organizations and we can bring their voices to the legislature and ask for it to be updated. They're, they've opened the Planning Act once, they can totally open it again, they can reverse these changes. They are wildly unpopular. And when, when you have, like I said, the Association of Municipalities of Ontario, the Ontario Federation of Agriculture, those are big uh, PC stakeholders. And to see a government kind of pushing through changes that, that fly in the face you know, this government has been opposed to environmental groups from the get-go, but, but when you start seeing the other groups that line up, uh, the, we had the cottagers associations coming forward because they, they don't, they appreciate watershed planning. Uh, it, it really was quite incredible, the, the breadth of opposition to this. And so we'll continue working with all of those groups, uh, introduce private members bills to reduce this. Uh, do anything we can to raise the profile and, and at the very least make the government feel the hurt for what they've done to the environment. Right. And when you say, you know, there's so many people pushing back, this is, this is a movement. It, it's amazing. Is, could these changes be reversed? Is that possible? A hundred percent. If, if, if the government wanted to, they could reverse them in, in short order. They, they do this thing called time allocation where they should, they truncate the amount of debate on a, on a bill. They can pass a bill in three days if they want to now. So it wouldn't really take them that long to go back and, and do this. Uh, it wouldn't be in a budget bill. So they would have to post the changes to the environmental registry, which would give the public more time to have input on these changes. So if they wanted to, they will, but these were done to, to satisfy a, a small group of developers who have the ear of the premier and they funded his uh, leadership run and, and provided huge amounts of money in the, in the last Ontario election. And, you know, frankly, it's payback time. So I don't think the government will reverse this, but uh, certainly we would reverse them as, as soon as we were elected if we formed government after the next election. It's watershed planning is done 
overeaters. And so there's, you know, what, 16 months, 18 months until the next election. So we certainly have a window to, to push back against this. Again, thank you so much. And for all you do at Queen's Park, it's wonderful to speak with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, happy to come back anytime. There's a lot here to digest. This radio program, Everyday City, is really about shedding light on what's going on in our city and the role that we can play. For us in Kingston, changes to the Conservation Authorities Act at a provincial level is a local issue. There is an impact on our city and our environment. And then when we scale this up and think about the impact across Ontario, it's massive. So what is our role? To me, it's about knowing what's going on. Reading a 160-page bill, who has time for that? Hopefully our politicians do. So we need to look to them and hold them accountable and make choices when we vote. The other thing is that development is a big part of this story. And that's for us to pay attention to in our city. A development application proposed for a wetland, we can engage with that and we can share our opinions on an ongoing basis, not just when something is a big news story. That's all for today, folks. Thanks for listening, and thanks to our guests, Katrina and Ian. That was Everyday City, and I'm Meg Herod. You can follow me on Twitter at EverydayCityYGK. You are listening to CFRC 101.9 FM. 